This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast is sponsored by Siberia Bar and Hotel on Bellman Street, Aberdeen. Located only 30 seconds walk away from the nearest bus stop, taking supporters to Pataudry for free on match days. Siberia Bar and Hotel is open seven days a week, all year round, and get fired in with our exclusive discounts. Head to the bar and quote the phrase ABZ Pod, that's ABZ Pod, for a £3 pound of Foster's, a £4 for a pint of Moretti or Dark Fruits, or £5 for a pint of Fierce or a Daiquiri any day of the week, including match days. Come on, you Reds. Red slight of foot there. And you know what that means. Welcome to episode 76 of the ABZ Football Podcast. I'm Gary Scott. Joining me this week, as always, it is Gavin J. Baxter and Graham Steele. Gents, how's it going? Fair at middling this week, I would have to say. It's a weird one, isn't it? We're we're talking Sunday night, basking in the glory of the World Cup final. The greatest of all time has perhaps cemented his legacy um, as that in the in the game and Instead of talking about it, we're going to talk about Aberdeen versus Celtic at Pataudry. And uh, I don't know how I feel about that. Levels, as the kids say. Levels, <laughs> yes. Absolutely. In a week that saw the cinch return in all of its glory, and that, as Gavin says, that saw Argentina lift their third World Cup with Lionel Messi, perhaps cementing himself as the greatest of all time. It's up there for a debate, isn't it? But for me, for my money... The thing that was always held against him was the fact he didn't have the World Cup in the back pocket. And uh, tonight, he picked that one up. So, from my perspective, unquestionably the greatest of all time. Jenks? I actually don't really get too hung up about that debate. If you take him and Ronaldo, in a way, it's a little bit sad because it's certainly this sort of level. It's basically the end of an era or like our era of you know watching these guys because can't, they're not going to make it to another one or probably any other. I think Ronaldo major. might try. I think he'll, he'll still be like desperately hanging on. But trying. I mean, none of these guys are at the peak of their powers anymore. So from that point of view, it's kind of like the beginning of the end for both of them in terms of seeing them week in and week out. I mean, some of the stuff they've both done over the years has been absolutely outrageous. Um, so yeah, I think it's probably, I wouldn't really care who won, but if you wanted to go down the route of the, the script, it's probably a nice way for Messi to end. And yeah, any that stick people had to beat him with is gone now, so there's not really much you can say. I mean, he's... He's got everything you could possibly want other than maybe have him played away at Stoke on a cold Tuesday night. I don't know if he can still do that. Well, he's not a tennis sixes medal in his back pocket, to be fair to him. Or an Aberdeenshire Cup. So, yeah, I guess, actually, this guy's a bit of a fraud. <laughs> I was going to say, he did. He missed out on that opportunity to play for Rangers back in the day. Of course, as we all very well know, mm-hmm. could have been playing yeah, alongside Wee Barry, and, got him. Wee Barry and Chris Boyd up front. Um, I think it's just in terms of longevity and the numbers and the accolades, it's impossible not to look uh, Messi's way. So yeah, for me, even without the World Cup, it was he was going to be the greatest, and now it's just one hundred percent locked in. So yeah, it's another fairly busy week, I guess, on the show, and um, we're going to review our one 0 defeat at home to Celtic on Saturday lunchtime. We'll take our usual look at all the latest news from the club and we'll have a look at our loonies and loan watch as well this week. 
we'll preview our upcoming two fixtures this week. We've got uh, Sevco 5088 Limited visiting Pataudry on Tuesday evening. And because of time and because of circumstances, time of the year, we'll preview the St Mirren uh, game as well just now, which takes place on Christmas Eve. Then after the break, we will bring you part two of our exclusive interview with the man who scored the winning penalty the last time the Dons won the Scottish Cup all the way back in 1990 is the one and only Brian Irvin. But first, Aberdeen nil, Celtic won the 17th of December 2022 at the home of football in the SPFL Premiership. One enforced change for Jim Gooden from his starting lineup last time out against Dundee United with Jack McKenzie coming in for Liam Scales. Johnny Hayes making a welcome return to the bench alongside youngsters. Alfie Bavage and Finley Marshall becoming the latest young player to gain experience of being in and around the match day, the match day squad. The visitors welcoming back the majority of their World Cup players with Carter Vickers and Maeda in the team with Aaron Moy on the bench. Josip Juranovic, the only one missing, as he remained in Qatar for the third, fourth playoff match between Croatia and Morocco on Saturday afternoon. Which was and- a tasty game, if I might say so. Graham and I took that in at uh, Mark Cameron's after yeah, a bit of a spicy and yeah, some uh, some good goals, some good football. Um, given it's a pretty meaningless game of football in a lot of ways, it was it was fun, entertaining, softened, took the edge off of what I'd just seen. <laughs> after all the questions through the week about what we were going to do in terms of setup, um, the Dons did stick with three at the back. Uh, Jack McKenzie slotting in on the left hand side of the back three. Matty Kennedy and Hayden Coulson as wing-backs with Duke and Miofsky up top. And let's be honest, the first half, I was going to say the first half, the whole game was like watching a relatively standard defence versus attack kind of drill, wasn't it? The Dons, absolutely more than content to sit deep, allow the visitors onto them. And it was the visitors dominating possession and territory with the Dons defence managing to get themselves in front of a number of uh, shots before Kel Roos was finally called into action. First of all, to make a relatively comfortable stop from a curling effort from outside the box from Jota before he then had to get down quite smartly to stop from Hitati. That was kind of about it as far as real goal mouth action went in the first half. Um, Leighton Clarks with a free kick that was blazed over the bar. That was about as close as Aberdeen had got as we continued to frustrate Celtic with, I think it's fair to say, some decent defensive work. Um, Cal McGregor with a wild long-range effort towards the back end of that first half. Summing up the visitors' frustration, I think, is the teams were in at halftime at 0-0. And at that point, the Wayside had an 80% possession rating, 15 shots to Aberdeen's one. But there were certainly some signs there in the first half that if we could just get our transitions right, then we might have been able to cause Celtic some difficulties at the back because Celtic's fullbacks were pushing on so high that it meant we were basically left with a 2v2 uh, between the Celtic centre-halves and Duke and Miofsky at the other end. At half-time, Abada came on for Hitati. Um, the Dons sticking with the same... No, he didn't come on for Hitati. He came on for Maeda, didn't he? The Dons sticking with the same 11 for the start of the second half. But nothing had changed. Uh, Kyogo missing an absolute sitter past the post on 53 minutes before Hitati. And Abada both then saw efforts blocked. A triple change for Celtic on 72 minutes. So Turnbull, Jackamakis, and Forrest on for Jota, Kyogo and Hitati. Aberdeen making their own swap with Miofsky withdrawn for Hayes and Clarkson a couple of minutes later following suit to be replaced by Ryan Duncan with both Miofsky and Clarkson appearing to have left the pitch due to injury. 
Giacomakis with a couple of headed efforts after coming on, but these were still going begging, and there was a growing sense of inevitability, I think, about this, and that came to fruition on 87 minutes, the ball falling to McGregor just outside the box, and his low effort found the bomb corner. Aberdeen responded by bringing Shaden Morris off the bench for Anthony Stewart. We finally decided to put a few passes together, but it was all way too little, way too late. Full-time whistle went. The Dons now with no win against Celtic at home since 2016. And in terms of the <laughs> hashtag data, uh, a grim read this week, shall we say. Oh, possession. Man, I, just, I, I just read the expected goals. Yeah, the expected goals are an absolute doozy. Uh, possession, 20% to Aberdeen to 80% for the visitors. Total shots, two for Aberdeen to 33 for Celtic. No shots on target from Aberdeen, 10 on target from Celtic. Expected goals for Aberdeen, not point not six to Celtics, two point three four. Um, gents, that's an expected. Gavin's that's an expected success rate of your back heel tackles or goals. This is true. This is true. Um, I can see Gavin just rubbing his head. Graham just looks depressed to even be thinking about talking about this again. Your thoughts on yesterday lunchtime? Well, Graham, I'll uh, I'll be gracious and let you take the. The first hit here. I can see the next section's news from Patorja, but we just skipped the next section. <laughs> uh, but first of all, like in general, I'm less concerned about the performance. I don't believe there's the right way to play football. The right way to play football, like any sport, is to win. So had we got something out of the game, and realistically with that sort of performance, the absolute maximum you'd got would a point, which would have been a pretty good result. I'd have probably been sitting here saying that was boring. I don't really want to see that again, but it worked, so can I be over the critical? But it didn't work, and from about the first couple of minutes, Gavin and I spent most of the game looking at each other like, okay, when are we going to like do something about it? When's this training drill going to stop? When's there going to be a game of football? And it just never happened. I honestly cannot think, you look at that possession stat, I don't think I've ever seen that at Pataudry. You know, it's like what was the game where Levine was a manager of Scotland? Was it Croatia or Czech Republic? Where he Czech basically Republic. had like the keeper and then 10. That's kind of what we had. There was Roos where he should have been, and then the rest of them just in a line at the edge of our box. It was pretty embarrassing. Um, I, I would have been sitting here if we got a point saying, you know, it worked and maybe that is the way to do it and counter it, but it didn't work. And if that's the message you're sending out, that's how you think the Aberdeen manager should set up against pretty much anyone at home. That's just not a good look in my in my opinion. Um, I don't really know where we go from here, to be honest. Yeah, Craig Levine set up 4-6-0. We set up 8-0-2. Uh, uh, Levine looked quite adventurous in comparison. Quite a, quite <laughs> the a, maverick that Craig Levine, isn't he? Quite a, quite a play. Um, my first initial thought is, what was the second shot on goal? Yeah. I can think of Clarkson's free kick, and I have well, no look. idea where that second one comes from. I'll have a look while we're talking. While you while you go, Gav, I'll find um, it. And also, twenty feels a little high, doesn't it? Possession-wise, yeah. yeah, a lot of throw-ins, a lot of goal kicks. Ross mm-hmm. McClory had kicks. a shot in the injury time. Oh yes, he did. I blazed over into the yeah. Merkland stand. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Of course, that's your two. I do remember that now. Remember ducking for cover when it came my way. <laughs> um, I think. My overriding sense is that, um, much like everyone, I don't really want to see 
Aberdeen as the home team setting up in such a very obviously negative fashion. I am one of the people that tends to agree with the the notion that if we'd set up to be overly expansive, then we could have been really put to the sword. I don't necessarily mind being more pragmatic and trying to make ourselves more difficult to to beat or score against. But I think there's um there's a happy medium between going gung ho, maybe like we did at Ibrox, and being being that that negative, but also defensive, but so passive. And you know, I think we're very submissive to Celtic. And oh wait, I just can't, I just can't fathom um, a Jim Goodwin team being. You know, I think of so many instances of them passing the ball around our box so so very easily and you call it a training drill it's like attack versus defense but the caveat is that attack must always have two people in acres of space and whatever you do you can't challenge the wingers um and just carry on and yet it was it's frustrating as well because then you know we we go through the game and like graham i wasn't happy with the way we played but if we'd got a point out of gladly gladly taken it and kept a clean sheet against Celtic it would have been something you you know you can kind of look at that and say that's a positive certainly but yeah it's, um the result I, might be a positive but the result yeah the instead of a positive and the clean sheet is you know yeah, that, but the way we, we went about getting it yeah we've not kept clean sheets generally speaking for two years yeah. now so to have done that would have been a success but you know I've I've never whenever the ball was in Kelrus's hands or with the ball goes out for a throw-in or forget, I've never found myself thinking, okay, let's maximize the time the ball was not in play because we are so, so far out of this game. It's kind of unbelievable. And the frustrating thing is, you know, you get to that moment in the 87th minute when we were saying it felt inevitable from about minute 10, minute 20 onwards. And then you get to that point where it's like, okay, the clock's winding down and maybe we've just, maybe we've done this and we'll get away with this. And, you know, we can um, dissect the way we've gone about this later on, but the important thing is we're kind of come away with a, a point and a clean sheet against um, against Celtic, and then it happens. McGregor scores that goal, of course he does, and then then we kind of start knocking the ball around and we start attacking Celtic's fairly ordinary fullbacks, and lo and behold, it was providing us with a little bit of joy rather than just you know being camped out on the edge of our box with eight bodies and then just shelling it long to either Miofsky and Duke um, to try and make chicken salad out of chicken shit. It was, yeah, it was so frustrating and just, um, yeah, a disappointing result and, yeah, an even more disappointing performance. A disappointing approach to a home game. Yeah, and I think, in a way, I kind of feel that Jim Goodwin's post-match comments have kind of made things a little bit worse as well from this perspective we touched on something in a minute but i mean i think we both probably agreed that if we'd scraped a nil nil i think we'd have all gone fine i'll take the point obviously i will especially because the way the game went as well but it did feel inevitable celtic we're going to score but as a as a support base i've now been told that we can expect you know exciting attacking football at the club that's not going to encourage people to pay you know i think tickets i think some of the tickets for the game on saturday were like 38 quid a pop Deciding to set up that way against anybody at home, I kind of don't almost care who you're playing. To decide to set up that way at home, it's not going to encourage people to stick their hand in their pocket, is it? And and come back to a game in the near future. Even if it's free, it's not going to encourage you to go. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's one or two people at my work who uh, opted off the back of our home form to date to um, in, the, in the kind of World Cup break buy um, half-season tickets. 
and that's the first game on the book. And oh dear, <laughs> oh, 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 oh. that is money that you've just would have been better off setting that shit on fire. And yeah, yeah, and that's the thing, isn't it? Like because at home, especially, we've been generally decent so far. We've been relatively free flowing. We've been scoring goals. That's only two defeats because of the defense. Yeah, but yeah, but because of the defensive issues we had as well in terms of who you put in, scales coming out, etc. There was a part of me that thought, well, attack is almost going to be potentially our best form of defense here in, in, in order to try and get something out of this game. I think the, I think the, the idea of mirroring what St. Mirren, or attempting to mirror what St. Mirren did against Celtic, which is what Jim Gooden did, let's not try and pretend otherwise, and he made it quite clear in the pre-match uh, interviews as well, he'd been watching a lot of that. Attempting to do that, it just, it just felt wrong to me. Um, as an Aberdeen fan, to watch my team set up that way against anyone at home. I just, it could be, and somebody made a good point, you know, Bayern Munich arrived at Pataudry in 2008 with, you know, World Cup stars galore from Germany. And yes, we we sat in and we tried to contain, but we also had a go at it. You know, we we weren't scared about taking the game to a team like that at that, at that point. You know, it's just <clears throat> the level of deference we showed Celtic yesterday was frightening from my perspective. I don't think it matters how good you are, if you, you know, how good a defensive unit you might be. It's really difficult to literally just say to the opposition, just come at us for 90 minutes and you have nothing to worry about. Yeah. So if you, you know, if you do take a shot and it gets deflected and it's bound around midfield, you'll pick it up and you'll just come at us again. So don't worry about it. I mean, it's just, I think it's really quite embarrassing if we are supposed to be one of the bigger clubs and yeah. the third best team in the league. That's how we think we should be setting up against anyone. Um, and I appreciate, obviously, if we got studded 4-0 and we'd had a go, we'd still be mourning, but you're going to be mourning anyway because you still lost. You still didn't well, get yeah. out of the game. Uh, but that, I don't really, I don't want to see that again. I think that's just the wrong mentality for the club, in my opinion. I draw the parallel to like, look at Hearts this season, you know, uh, uh, against uh, Celtic. And that was a Hearts team who were pretty injury hit as well at the time. Made the game of it. It was 4-3, I think it finished, didn't it, that one? You know, okay, there'll be people there saying, well, they still lost. They still ended up with the same number of points on the board after that game as we did. But at least Hearts fans came away from that game thinking, well, we gave them a right good fucking go today and we gave them a right big scare. I mean, even Postacoglu said post-match, that's the most dominant Celtic have been away from home in the entire time he's been here. And that's worrying. Yeah. Um, yeah, the deference. Carry Arneson is somewhere in Iceland just like feeling rage boiling up in him subconsciously, <laughs> not even really knowing why, but just absolutely fuming. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not going to be one of these people that's going to say that I think we should have had a, a real go because I do think, I think Celtic came to play. I think Celtic were pretty good with the ball. I think that could have really ended badly and I, I don't care what people say. I've never heard anyone, any football fan, off the back of a 5-0 defeat say, oh, well, we had a go. That's just, that's bullshit. I'm calling that right now. But I think there is, like I say, there's a happy medium between what we did and, you know, being overly adventurous. You need, if you're going to play that way, we need intensity in our defence. And it just wasn't there. I don't, Connor Barron apart, I don't think anyone even tried to play, lay a glove on any Celtic player. And that's that's the unforgettable part for me. I mean, I guess if you played devil's advocate, right, we were all very critical about the fact we were too open at Ibrox. So can we be overly critical for him going the other way? Yes. Yeah, uh, if 
when it goes, I, I to, that, when it goes to that extreme, yes. Yes, yeah. exactly, that extreme. Yeah, when you're literally just saying to a team, we will not do anything to try and hurt you, just come and play us for 90 minutes. That is poor. And I, I, it's not like it was, you know, injury ravaged and he's got a team for the no, kids no. and he's just desperately trying to get 11 guys out there and get by. I mean, that was with the exception of scales for obvious reasons. That's pretty much the normal team. And to not yep. even have any sort of attempt to carry a threat was just really, really poor. Yeah, our attacking threat, <laughs> that feels um, sarcastic calling it that. Um, our attacking uh, game plan was very much, as soon as we get the ball, get it long to yeah. Miofsky. And, and basically we need to make... And hope that they can make it a 2v2. We need either Starfelt or Carvickers to make a mistake. Yeah. And yeah, that's that's not. Um, you look at all the good defensive performances in in history, and yeah, every team has a plan when they get in possession. Whether that's simply just to maintain possession of the ball, or to actually then transition that into an attack, and it just wasn't there. Because I've actually seen a lot of people today as well talk about it and kind of criticizing the midfield for not getting up in support quickly enough yesterday when we did eventually turn the ball over. But I honestly think that it's not the players. I think they were told. You sit. You're you're not to go up the park effectively. And, and Goodwin basically admitted that in his post match interview as well. I think that I think the, the the midfield three had been told to sit, and they will sit in front of the defence no matter what. And it was basically trying to leave it two v two at the other end and hope that something happens and we can maybe generate a set piece or yeah, as Gavin says, Carter Vickers or Starfelt makes a mistake and Duker Miofsky gets slipped in. And there was a couple of times it nearly happened. Um, in, in the first half, didn't really happen at all second half um, but it was pretty clear to me that everyone barred Duke and Miofsky had been told you sit in these positions and you are not moving. Yeah, there was, there was an instance in the first half, because Graham and I made mention of it, that's why I remember it so clearly um, when Duke was going up the left channel against Ralston and you felt that Hayden Coulson had the supporting run to make and he just sat back almost on the halfway line. And it's yeah. very unusual for Hayden Colson to do that. You think of him as being a very proactive attacking player. So yeah, I, mean, I think I tend to agree. The game plan was clear that, you know, we, if we were going to score, Duke and Mielski had to do it pretty much all by themselves. I guess, uh, before we move on to this one then, actually, because, yeah, let, let's let's talk about this for a minute. Are, are there any positives that we can take out of that performance yesterday? Because I thought, this is, this is going to sound really funny because I'm criticising how defensive we were. But I actually felt defensively we actually did quite well in the main. I thought that our shape was pretty good. I felt that we kind of were picking the right time to press, to squeeze. I thought actually the midfield three sitting in front of um, the defence did a good job in terms of shuffling across and trying to squeeze the, the the wide players as much as they possibly could for Celtic. I actually I, I felt defensively, I, I actually think we played well. In, I, I think the players executed what they were being asked to do by the manager well in fairness and i it, w- it seems really odd I, don't, I they shouldn't have been asked to do that but i actually thought we played quite well from that perspective if that makes any sort of sense does that mean every week at fives you're asked not to go anywhere near anyone and just shuffle around the middle but i thought they were doing that i i felt that they were doing what they were asked to do i think they were being told not to overcommit not to allow overloads to happen so it was going to certainly across. did not overcommit i'll give them that yeah, but I felt that's what they were being asked to do, though. Um, I, I know where you're coming from, regardless. Like, it's not the players' fault, because I think we've had this <laughs> chat before. Where do the players take ownership on the pitch? I'd be like, nah, this is a 
fucking stupid game plan. We're not doing it. And where do they do their job, yeah. which is to do what the manager tells them. So, although no one really likes what the manager was telling them, it, I know what you mean. Because Gavin and I actually were saying, like, this is, you know, we're not particularly enjoying this, but there was that game against Celtic, I think it was under Stephen Glass, where we try to do something, not quite as drastic, but we try to be defensive. Yeah. And then, like, Johnny Hayes would break line. Someone was always eager. Yeah. And then Celtic just waited. And they just passed around. They had an overload all of a sudden. They passed yeah, a little passing yeah. triangle, bang, straight in, and we were in big trouble. This was different because those opportunities weren't there because people were... So they were doing their jobs. Yeah. yeah, they were doing their jobs. It's just the job they were told to do was pretty grim. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But so- I know what you mean. They, they did, the players did, clearly did what they were told. So from that point of view, you know, that's probably encouraging that they're, they can act out a game plan. It's just a little disappointing what that game plan was. There yeah. was the, the one positive I took it, or on you, sorry, anyway. I was just going to say, I mean, I, I would take issue with the idea that there weren't any significant overloads because I can think of numerous instances where um, on the wide areas especially, you'll have one or two or even three Aberdeen players just following the ball it's what, what it looked like to me. And then you'll have Maeda or Jota or Taylor or Ralston yeah. getting into our byline and on better days for Celtic, you know, they find a Celtic um, shirt in the box and we're 1-0 down pretty, pretty quick and that's going to be an even longer afternoon than it actually was. Um, so yeah, I, 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 yeah, no. <laughs> no. When I was talking about overloads, I actually met in the middle of the park. I didn't feel there was any time that Celtic had... An easy pass through the middle of the park that they could just play a couple of passes around us and they were in. But I think the thing is that Celtic still have the players that even in tight spaces you can, yeah, they can uh, play passes and you know again on different days one or two of those flicks find Celtic shirts. We were, I think, sometimes fortuitous that our clearances didn't find Celtic shirts. I must admit, I did feel that way a little bit in the first half. That there were a couple of times I thought. In in previous games, that deflection lands at the feet of like Kyogo four yards out. Yeah, and he just taps at home. Yeah, um, I think. Th- yeah, I think when it comes when it came to the crunch situations, as in when the ball's in our box or in and around, and a Celtic player is looking to get a shot away, we did. We were pretty resilient. I'll give them credit. That yeah, way. I, I, and that's the thing. I think the only, that's li- literally the only pause that I can take out of yesterday yeah. is that we've been so porous as a defensive, you know team this season Defend, defenders were putting their bodies on the line to to block shots and yeah i think even duke once ta- i think even duke like made a tackle with his head at one point which was quite he did i think you're right only but, someone had blocked callum mcgregor yeah exactly but i think that was one of the positive that was the only positive too was the fact that for us being so porous all season so far that there actually did appear to be a moment where you could go, okay this team could potentially if you went you know one nil up at Tynecastle, and you've got to see out the last 20 minutes or something by locking a game down. It's this, the kind of thing we spoke to Tom Watt about last season with Stephen Glass, that the team didn't appear capable of actually locking a game out. I was kind of like, I reckon you could probably... I don't really want to see it, but we could see out a game playing like that, potentially. One big positive is what I thought. I thought Jack McKenzie played well yesterday um, on the left-hand side of the back three. And now I know Gav's got his... Big doubts about Jack McKenzie. Um, I think shared in the main by a few of us, but Gav's generally quite vocal about this one. But I thought, on the whole, I thought McKenzie had a pretty good game yesterday. I would agree. I thought he did. I thought he did a decent job. I certainly, I can't think of any instances where I would be laying much of any blame on him for how things went. So, yeah, I thought he did. 
I was a little nervous when I saw him coming in, although I kind of expected it, but yeah, still a little nervous. But no, I thought he did a decent he did a decent job. I don't have any criticism for him. Um it's it's a weird one given how clearly the uh, the game was in our final third. I don't really remember him doing much in that in that kind of sense. So obviously he wasn't doing anything bad. Uh, there's a moment in the second half that he is probably second favorite to a ball with a bada and he catches him and makes a really good tackle and it's you know, one of the few moments in the game we actually had something to kind of cheer about. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, yeah, hesitation. Um, contrary to what some people are saying, I don't really want to ever see him playing the left side of a back two ever again. And no, I, not uh, I wouldn't, no. um, I, I wouldn't say that I'd see this being a long term position for him, but yeah, he did, he did well. There's no doubt about that. We need to move on, I guess, to the is it the elephant in the room? I don't know if it is, but there's been a lot of people overnight and into today kind of questioning once again the mentality of the manager um you know whether the job is too big for him um that was worrying that yesterday a little bit wasn't it? on a number of different levels yesterday it it was but then there's always that sort of balancing out of realism versus what we want as fans i personally think that was too extreme i mean realistically where are we probably going to be able to take the game to Celtic and beat them no, as much as I'd love to have happened. Could we have been a lot more aggressive and possibly got a point out of it? Yeah, I do. I do believe that. So I think it was too far the other way. But we're always going to be thinking, oh, we're Aberdeen, we're great. We should be going out and have a go at everyone. Obviously, the manager doesn't have that point of view. He's got a realistic view as the manager of what he thinks is the best way to get the result. I do think he was too cautious there and whether that's just like a one-off thing he tried it didn't work and we'll never see it again whether that is his mindset I'm not I feel like it's a little early to be saying you know that that's it you can't handle any games like that but obviously his record against them either side of them is not brilliant so far we're not yeah, even from well, the point of view of not necessarily results but the performances I mean going ahead of Ibrox you're like, yeah that's great and then get absolutely battered is not a good look and then never lay a glove them on Saturday and still lose isn't a good look either when it comes to that I think I'd still subscribe to the theory that you know it's he's um a, a still a pretty young manager learning things and I think we definitely need to give him you know at least a season to learn from these kind of things um but is there not already a bit of a track record building here though because you know I'm gonna quickly I'm gonna look back really quickly to well, there's, there's a couple of things that came out. Sorry, Gavin, I know I've just interrupted you right in your flow here, but you're, you're saying he's a young manager, and yeah, I, he is to an extent. But at the same the same token, he's really not. He's he's managed enough now in Scotland to know, you know, what it's all about. Uh, we've just watched a rookie manager win the World Cup, for fuck's sake. Um, so let's not try and pretend that Scottish football is somehow some Rubik's Cube of footballing greatness that you need to fucking solve. Who's, who's our messing? Yeah, Duke. Um, but look at let's look at Ibrox earlier this season. A horrendous performance. Celtic on the opening day this season, passive, far too much respect given. Ibrox last season, horrendously bad, way too much respect given. Pretty much a similar, a pretty much a similar performance to actually what we put in on Saturday. Hearts at Tynecastle last season, dreadful where we tried to play the same way as well. We tried to sit in and, and, and contain. United away this season, horrendous. 
Now, take the United game out, out, out of the equation if you want to, because we went into that game as the over, overriding favourites for that. But those other games there, those are those are big games in the Aberdeen manager's football calendar, you know? And in each one of those, we've been found one thing for various different reasons. And in most of them, we're way too passive. And we don't appear to have had any sort of game plan. Well, Ibrox is different because we went fucking way too open. But the other ones, we just sat in and tried to do what we did on Saturday and it didn't work. Is there not actually, there's an element here where this is actually his default setting when it comes to quote unquote big games? It is. Yeah. I, I, I definitely see your point. Yeah. And fucking right, you see my point. Girl. And yeah, it's, it's hitting me right in the face. Um, I think kind of where I was going to go with my, my train of thought before uh, you, hit Sorry. With, you hit me with numbers and hey, fat traumatic memories. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me, I'm just going to take a drink just to suppress. Cannabis. Sorry. Well, this will make you feel better. Um, ah, tonight, shit, when... it's, shit, it's alcohol-free. Um, hey, look, when, um, when Lucas appeared on the screen tonight, um, Orla said, there's Uncle Gavin. So there you go. And who <laughs> appeared on screen? <laughs> Messy. <laughs> Does Uncle Gavin cut about your gaff in a robe? We do both have gingerish beards, so... Yeah, I think that's where it that's, began uh, and ended, but never mind. Anyway, sorry. Like I said, I, th- I think that... I think still time is needed for him to work these things out. And yeah, what, you've, what you're saying is completely correct. There's been a lot of outright um, unacceptable performances, without a doubt. And the, I, I still look at it, what he's done, as being, generally speaking as good as what I kind of expect, you know, it's even with that result, we are still third place in the league. We are in a semi-final. The thing that kind of haunts me right now is that if we manage to get to say the league cup final and we play Celtic in the most likely situation, because God knows Deke's team aren't beating Celtic at Hampden. Where do you draw any kind of confidence from just taking that game at Petrodre alone? Where do you take any confidence um, and say, let's put this game on a much bigger pitch yeah, and how do we approach this and actually, you know, hurt Celtic? I don't see how we do that. So yeah, he, like I said, I'm still very much in favour of of what he's doing, but he's going to need to learn. He's going to need to learn fast because you can sense the. It was palpable in the red shed, especially. Graham might agree with us that how dissatisfied people were with our approach, and you've got it online. You've got it in the pub after the game. People are not going to tolerate that, and doesn't matter if it's we're only getting beat one nil. It's not going to go well. Well, that's the thing, is that we're going to touch on the, the, the game on Tuesday in a minute or two, but if he sets up that way again on Tuesday, it's that for me will be a massive red flag once again, and that could even already put him in a place within the support's feelings about he's not yeah. really the right guy for the job. Yeah, there's, um, um, there's, there's spoiler alert or newsflash, but yeah, there's an element of our support who uh, look at Tuesday night as being the biggest game of the season, and if we approach in such a negative deferential fashion then yeah it's going to be a metaphorical bloodbath <laughs> um one thing i'd like to add because i can't fully agree with your point because i'm petty is wetting our pants the big stage is just kind of our mo it's not really solely down to goodwin uh, which is also a fair point uh, that is that is a fair point uh, gav raises a good question though about that it's like if we if we do um beat Rangers in the League Cup semi, it's going to be very difficult to try and convince people actually that we can go to Hamden and beat Celtic in the League Cup final though, isn't it? After that performance on Saturday. I mean, that's just a difficult... It's a difficult sell anyway, but after after Saturday... No, it doesn't make it easier. It doesn't make it easier. I absolutely agree with you there. 
it, it was a difficult, it was going to be a difficult one to shift the job lot tickets for anyway, but people are going to have that fresh in the back of their mind and are going to be less inclined to uh, to go should we end up in that scenario. Yeah. So, yeah, not not a very good day at the office. No, definitely not. And that's the thing. I think this was the point I was going to get to as well. Was, I think the post-match press conference was almost the bit that riled me more once again this season. Like, you know, Tanadice, I was pissed off to the nth degree about the performance. But then it was like Lee Sharp after has been like, oh, well, you know, it's just a bad day at the office. And hey, well, you go again. Real riled me more. And I think that was the thing with like, yesterday then was when Goodwin was giving it like, oh, you know, we went to Ibrox and we were open and people gave us big pats on the back for that. It's like, nobody gave us pats on the back for the performance at Ibrox because it was yeah. fucking ludicrous. Yeah, getting battered for one gym, no one's going to be high-fiving you. And then yeah. there's a lot of revisionism Which proves about... my point, by the way, that having a go does not make people say, oh, no, no, yeah. It's not a free pass, is it? Yeah. No, absolutely. And then there was a lot of revisionism around, oh, we went to Parkhead in the opening day of the season and had a right go. And it's like, no, we didn't. I watched that game. We didn't have a right good go at Celtic. We could see that after five minutes, for fuck's sake. That was a right good go. You know. For four and a bit minutes, too open. <laughs> Shut up, shop. And then I, I take your point. There's, there is a lot of somehow twisting the performances from previous games to justify yeah. the choices made for Saturday. But you, you can't go back and suddenly decide... <laughs> That everyone was telling you we did a great job, but we were too open. Because yeah. yeah. that just um, never happened. Probably because we do this show, I should be more um, prepared and actually listen to things like post-match interviews. But I generally speaking, tend not to, especially when we've been beaten, because they just tend to be full of the same old tropes yeah. and cliches that um, just fucking rile me. <laughs> because the whole ah, we're hurting, we're hurting kind of chat, and then it's like ah, fuck <laughs> I'd off. rather seen that yesterday. To be honest, I am. Um, the one quote that caught my eye was the um, the sucker punch oh. comment, which, um, once again, I think Graham will attest to. We were talking for very early on that this felt inevitable that we were going to concede a goal. Um, I don't think, yeah, I don't think you're, if, if, it's, if you're boxing, if you're a boxer and your opponent throws like 300 punches and one knocks you out, not really a sucker punch. No. No. If you were chatting, you know, just at the start about, well, we defended well, you know, bodies on the line, blocking shots. And then Gavin was like, you know, was it was like that Maldini quote or something? Like, if I had to make a tackle, it's because I've made a mistake. If you're diving in front of the ball, it's because your man's beating you or you're bailing out a colleague, you know. The ball ricocheting around the box, unfortunately not landing at Celtic's player feet. Woeful finishing from Celtic is not good work from us. That goal was coming and should have arrived yeah. a long time before it did. So if that's what he thinks a sucker punch is, then maybe it's maybe it's back to school for a wee while because that's not my understanding of the phrase. Yeah, exactly. when, Dred when Dredrick Tatum was fighting Homer Simpson for the world title, he wasn't landing any <laughs> sucker punches in that fight. <laughs> exactly. And um, if, if Kyogo had shown up in Scottish Premiership form, Kyogo probably has a hat-trick. Thankfully, we got him in Champions League form and he was fucking terrible. Yeah, but um, you know the number of times the ball fizzed across our our goal line, or you know chances went begging. Um, yeah, that that's a comment I could not really quite get my head around. Let's go back to your earlier reference. We we definitely needed the equivalent of Mo to just come down in his fan machine and just take us all <laughs> off the pitch and away to safety. Absolutely. All in all, uh, I, I frankly 
awful afternoons football at Pataudry. I say football, anti-football is probably the best way to describe ourselves. No, I mean, even even Jose or Big Sam in their darkest moments would have done, wouldn't have done that. Do you think, here's, here's a question, do you think that Dave Cormack has a word with Goodwin after that performance yesterday? Well, no, it shouldn't be Cormac, but whoever's in charge of well, our Gunn, quote philosophy. Gunn. Yeah, I was going to say. Um, yeah, that's that should fall under the remit of the director of football, assuming the director of football has any influence on the way that we play football. But Jinky is. Jinky's in there having a bit of a pop at Goodwin for that yesterday? No. No, no not a chance. Either. Nope, not a chance. Um, right, uh, we're going to have to do this. Can we name a top don? I didn't even run the poll yesterday because I frankly couldn't be arsed, but... Between the three of us, can we can we go with a top down? Um, the one one instance in the first half aside when he made a very very strange decision to come for the ball when he had no right to do so, uh, which nearly led to Kyogre scoring. Had Stuart not been back in the line, I thought Kel Roos did a lot of his work pretty well. Um, made some good saves. Was pretty caught a couple. Was pretty good with his feet. Did come and collect some. Like I say, that one with Kyogo going round him. Don't come for that one. Aside from that, I thought he was um, pretty solid and yeah, no chance with the goal. So I'll go ahead and take Elrus. I am i can't even think of anyone. What about Shaden Morris? <laughs> yeah, for bothering to come off the bench in the cold, Shaden Morris. By the way, that's something we maybe need to talk about. How far down the pecking order is Vichetti Bajouin? Quite a bit, I think, as it if turns out. He's not coming on ahead of Hayes, Duncan or Morris. That's uh, not a good sign for his long-term future here. No, considering there's quite a lot of cash tied up in him. A lot of cash. Indeed. Yeah, not, Indeed. not good. Graham, sorry, can I give us a... No, honestly, I, I can't. There's no one <laughs> in that. And that. That's not me. I'm not being like, um, sort of really petulant. Yes, you are. I, I accept they did what they were told to do, but there's a story about that to the point where I could see anyone being a standout. Like the only person like Gav mentioned, everyone was like passive, I mean, Baron was trying to get in about people. The difficulty was he getting about someone. They just passed the ball to their mate. By the time he's chased like three guys around for a couple of minutes, he's obviously knackered, and then he has to take a break. And then they're just passing it around again. I honestly can't think of anyone that came off that pitch and I was like, they were trying to do something different. What about the barman that served you that first pint of vitamin tea? Yes, yes. For cheering me up, the barman of my Camerons gets my man of the match award. There we go. Lovely stuff. I'm going to give it to Jack McKenzie because I thought he did all right. And so doing all right is enough to win you top was, down yesterday. So. He was solid and we have all been, we're not alone in being critical. And he comes into what is quite a tough game anyway. So I I can see where you were coming from. He was a lot better than I thought he might have been. Feel for the record, we should clarify that, by the way, we did want to go to Siberia for our post-game pints. But unfortunately, it was actually, it was too busy with people taking advantage of their ABZ FP discount codes, and well, we were turned away. Well, I was watching, and they were all queued up in reception, or like the, the foyer a little bit, um, either making bookings or like signing in for bookings. And then Gavin and I were like, ah, you should, have played your, you should have played your big time fucking cards. Ah, we're not, we're not those kind of people. <laughs> Get our heads kicked in. <laughs> Honestly, rocking up the Alan Hutton style. Do you know who I am? Fucking amateurs. Honestly, amateurs. Never mind. We move on. Let's yes, please. please. Yes, let's move on. Right, on to news from Pataudry and Cormac Park this week. Not a huge amount of real news. 
this week. There was the AGM on Monday night, which was, as always, a complete damp squib. Um, Rob Wicks, though, did mention his single sign-on one more time. So, yes. You know, all good. Take, um, take that in your game of AGM bingo. Yeah, in response to a question about VAR screens, so it wasn't even related, which was some pretty impressive shoehorning, but never mind. The stadium, I guess, is still the big talking point out of the AGM. Stalemate, Dave Cormack, again, intimating we will remain interested observers and quote-unquote willing participants in the Beach Master Plan with the council, but we still have the option to uh, go back to Kingsford. Um, and Pataudry redevelopment was once again poo-pooed. So the full council meeting on Wednesday didn't shine any more light on anything that hadn't been contained in the report that we spoke about last week. The stadium remains on the plans, but it's contingent on Aberdeen paying for it. So no change there then. And the only other piece of news really this week was the confirmation that our Scottish Cup fourth round tie with Darville will now take place on Monday the 23rd of January with a 7.45pm kickoff. I think pretty much the worst possible result from the various different permutations of kickoff times. Top stuff. Well done, Scottish yes, football. football's for the fans, remember? Never let it be said the SFA don't look after us. Yeah, parking hell. Honestly, on Monday night, just anyway, we'll we move on. I don't even know if this falls under his remit, but I'm just going to blame Neil Doncaster. I, I don't think this does because it's the SFA. Um, no, no, I, I'm just... But we'll blame, but let's just blame him. I yep. assume that Graham does not object. No, no, not at all, not at all. A portioning of blame to Neil and his stupid haircut. No, um... All on board with that. Anyway, let's move on to Lone Watch. And there was an appearance off the bench for Connor McLennan. Uh, came off on the 71st minute as St. Johnston turned around a 1-0 deficit. After he came on, they scored both their goals. So MVP. There you go. What was that, Quinn? Am I correct in saying Adam Montgomery scored? No. No. Oh, did he get a yellow card or something like that? So that maybe. He got a yellow I saw card. his name on live score. He got a yellow card. For a second, I thought he might have actually contributed something good to football, but obviously not. But yeah, um, St. Johnson were 1-0 down when Conor McLean took the pitch. Took to the pitch, even. And uh, within within 10 minutes, they were 2-1 up. So bring him back. January. Correlation, of course, is not causation, but never mind. Um, Kieran Nguenia, another start for him in the championship as our Arbroath did something. No, Wraith Rovers drew 1-1 with our Arbroath at Starks Park. Mason Hancock, not in the matchday squad for our growth in that one. No games for Evan Tyler, Tom Ritchie, or Kevin Hanratty as all of their games were off. And no game either for Dean Campbell as his Stevenage side's trip to play the crazy gang of Wimbledon was postponed due to the weather as well. For the young team, no game for them. Their cast under 18 game with the United at Cormac Park on Friday night was called off due to freezing conditions. So that game is now, sorry, no game now scheduled for the young team until home fixture with St Mirren on the 13th of January. Same goes for the women's team as well. Their away fixture at Rangers on Sunday afternoon was also called off. So on to Tuesday night then, which sees Sevco 5088 Limited trading as Rangers Football Club, visit Pataudry for the first time this season. Now, of course, gentlemen, this is a rearranged fixture from early in the season that had to be postponed because of things, reasons, um, circumstances yeah. that dictated also a certain club in our country taking down a framed picture in their dressing room and replacing it with another framed picture. Exactly. A wonderfully normal football club. Um, Absolutely. Now, obviously, since the last time we played them at Ibrox, they have jettisoned Giovanni Van Brockhorst and brought in Mick Beal. 
Mick Beale apparently is the way he wants to be known, which I think is the funniest fucking thing going, but never mind. His first match... Is that, is that, is that not what Danny Dyer's character was called in uh, EastEnders? It sounds like an EastEnders character, doesn't it? He looks like one too. A little bit, yeah. Talks like one. He does have that little bit of a what? Mick Beale. <laughs> um, his, I mean, you've, you've just impersonated Danny Dyer, but I'm going to accept that's how he talks. Yeah, it's just... East London, isn't it? Never mind. Um, where were we? Yeah, his first match on Thursday night saw them turn around a 2-1 deficit against Hibs, take three points after the weekend's results. That season remain in second place, nine points behind Celtic. Certainly with some injury concerns at the back, at the moment that saw them line up against Hibs with a centre-back pairing of John Lundstrom and Jamie Sands. If you get Gavs, <laughs> sharp intake of breath. Although it does look like Ben Davis might return. Um, oh, wow. To play us. Left back also. Not not Ben Davis. Not Ben Davis. <laughs> Left back possibly a problem area as well because Borna Barisic was at the World Cup. Obviously, he would have been on the bench, I think, in the third, fourth playoff. I don't know if he played. He, I think he played as many games at the World Cup as I did, to be fair. Let's have a look. Yeah, he didn't go off the bench. Um, <clears throat> so I don't know if he'll be back given time off, whatever. They had the young lad Divine, I think, play at left back against Hibs, and he looked rotten for the opening 45 minutes. Um, kind of came on a bit of a game second half. I'm going to put that down just to Hibs being Hibs, though, more than anything else. <laughs> um, top scorer Cholak, he also missed the game against Hibs with injury. Not clear if he'll be back. Morelos led the line on Thursday night and did score, but still looks hilarious overweight. So, you know, all good there. Um on one hand, it's kind of, I feel like it's kind of pointless looking too much into Sevco's data because they've only had the one game under Mick Bale. So it's hard to really gauge what, if anything, he's doing differently. I would have suspected that given he's widely suggested to be the main ideas man behind Steven Gerrard, which doesn't strike me as being entirely uh, out of the box thinking because Steven Gerrard does appear to be as thick as two planks of wood then I imagine that we'll see them try to play in a very similar way to how Gerrard's Rangers played, which would, I think, mean a relatively high-intensity press. They'll probably look to try and move the ball through the lines a lot quicker than what they did under Van Bronckhorst. And I think you kind of saw signs of that a little bit in the second half against Hibs. But for the first 45 minutes, Hibs were by far the better side, and you can clearly get at um, the Rangers' defence. Beale went with a 4-2-3-1 against Hibs, but he has indicated he, he wants to try and go with a two up top if he can with Cholak and Morelos. But again, like I say, I don't know if Cholak is going to be fit. So I think the biggest issue, as I see it, and it, it came out on Thursday night again, they have got pace in their team, especially down the flanks with the likes of Tillman, Kent and Sakala. We saw this obviously at Ibrox early in the season where they absolutely murdered us in the wide areas. But I'm just, I, I'm, I'm very intrigued to see how we set up on Tuesday night now after what happened on Saturday, because I do think Rangers look a lot more defensively suspect than Celtic, in particular at set pieces and balls down the sides of their centre half. So you'd imagine that should be something that Duke could thrive on. Now, Liam Scales presumably will be straight back into the team on Tuesday. But do we do we have hope that we will abandon the all-out defensive approach that we took on Saturday against Celtic? Because this is a big test now for Goodwin, isn't it? Hope is all we have. I I can't imagine that we will be as yeah submissive to 
Rangers as we were to Celtic. Uh, hopefully, scales being back in will give the manager a bit more confidence in the actual defence to be able to do its fundamental job of defending and we won't necessitate having the midfield helping out with it as well. Um, Rangers are in a in a weird kind of state, definitely having gone from Van Bronckhorst. Rangers to... are always in a weird state. They're the weirdest football club in the world. This is true. This is true. It is worth mentioning that Steven Gerrard is like unemployed right now and Rangers decided to go for his right-hand man, which is, if that is like not the most damning indictment of a manager, I don't know what is. McBeal's back in the back in the game and Steven Gerrard's flogging some kind of like <laughs> virtual boxing game on Facebook. So once again, levels is the word. Um <laughs> yeah, I've got I've got to believe that we're gonna take this game a much more positive approach to, to Rangers and because like you say there, it's a proper makeshift defense that they've got right now. It would be a whole other level of unforgivable, which is quite remarkable to say, given what we just reviewed. But it'd be a whole other level of just embarrassing if we were to take a similar approach. I gotta believe that we're gonna play this game with a lot more intent and really try and get the fans back on side. And the best way to do that, if you're an Aberdeen manager, if you're an Aberdeen team, is to is to go ahead and beat Rangers. I think given actually Gary's point around basically every big game he's botched, it's difficult to be overly optimistic as to why this would be different. But I can't see can't see him repeating the setup from Saturday too because of all the fallout but actually mainly because it didn't work if he got yeah. something out of that game I could maybe have seen him repeating it and it would be harder to criticise because you because it would have worked so why would you not try it again but it didn't work it was really unpopular I'm not saying obviously you don't really want your football club run by the reactions of fans after the match because what the hell sort of state would be in even three of us straight after the match some of the stuff you'd think well you wouldn't want to make your decisions on that basis but I can't I just can't see them deciding that the way we set up on Saturday is the way to go on Tuesday just can't see it I'll be really really pissed off if it is and I won't be alone in that I'm pretty sure it's a big test for him though isn't it it's a big test now yeah it's um, it's a big game definitely um, yeah takes on huge significance what can we expect then, do you think? What 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 do we anticipate us going a little bit bolder? Do we anticipate us trying to get into their faces a little bit more? Do we look at how Hibs played against them first half anyway, 45 minutes, where they really took the game to Rangers in the main? And 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 we're quite good at doing it, to be fair to them. Um set of pieces Celtic look at uh, Hibs set of pieces, Rangers looked pretty iffy. Um, it's not an area we've been necessarily that strong at either this season. No. Um, but I do think I do wonder with we do have a little bit of with the likes of Anthony Stewart in there. Miofsky's showing obviously it's Hibs, he can potentially peel off a, a player for a header McCrory. We do have a little bit of physicality around this. No, we're not the biggest, we touched on it a few weeks back. We're not the biggest team in the league by any stretch of the imagination. But Rangers were at sixes and sevens every time a ball got thrown at the box on 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 Thursday night. But again. Part of me also wonders whether just the the occasion got a bit to the Rangers players as well. First half, they seemed really weirdly off of it. Um, considering obviously the, you'd expect the new manager will come in, there might be a bit of a bounce. Um, he appeal, he certainly appears to be well liked by a number of the squad who were there under Gerard as well. You know that he would maybe get a bit of a tune out of them. It didn't happen first half, but then it does look to be fair to him when he took them in at half time. He, he managed to get that turned around a little bit. 
it's going to be interesting to see just how the game pans out. I think on on um, on Tuesday night, I think it's a big game for both managers. To be honest, I think it's a big game for Beal to for him to really get some uh, credence amongst the Rangers support as well. If Rangers players or any player for that matter are getting rocked by the occasion of playing Hibs at Easter Road, then I would maybe suggest finding a different career. But um, to take your point, when it comes to what I expect from us, because I think I think you're right, I think they will play in a way that is more reminiscent of Gerard, purely because, in all likelihood, Beal is the one that implemented that style of play. When it comes to what we do, I expect probably the one change that Scales will come back in for Jack McKenzie, and we'll play... I don't know if I expect this or I'm just hoping that we do it, but I hope that we can play in a way that's more familiar to the way we've played at home this season. And yeah, go at them and do the things we kind of talked about when we went to play to Ibrox and, you know, try and pin their fullbacks further up the pitch and, um, you know, really make uh, make use of the the space we can create for the likes of Connor Banner and then Leighton Clarkson. Yeah, if they're got makeshift setter backs with like Lundstrom and this boy Sands, who still looks murder, get the ball into Miofsky, get the ball into Duke, get them running, get them get their defenders facing, you know, running the opposite way. It's, it's the way we have to play this game. I think to do anything and to let Rangers play the way they want to do will be could be suicide. Talking about trying to pin their fullbacks back a bit further, that to me makes me think we need to think about changing system. To be honest, because I don't think the three five two lends itself very well to playing against a team who play in a 4-2-3-1 or a kind of 4-3-3 with high overlapping fullbacks. Because I think it leaves your wing back continually overloaded two on two on one. Um I wouldn't be massively opposed to switching back to a 4-2-3-1 type of setup and getting McCrory back in there in place of a Clarkson or a probably Clarkson, if anyone was to drop out and then yeah. Stuart scales in the back. Um Matty Kennedy, I thought she had a pretty good game. I'm gonna, yeah. I thought Matty Kennedy did okay. Yeah, Matty Kennedy did his job pretty well. Um, not familiar, uh, right back Aussie up against Jota, stuck to his task. So let's give him some credit. Yeah. Uh, Hayden Colston left back, and then yeah, you can think about getting a Johnny Hayes or um, yeah, a Johnny Hayes back in there to play le- wide left. Maybe play that Duke role. in the kind of number ten role, just behind. Uh, yeah, perhaps yeah. Yeah, it's 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 certainly food for thought. You need. But then it's that question, but do you put Kennedy in on the wide right of a three and then push Richardson back in? So then you have kind of Might two be a players. too early for Richardson, in my opinion. Yeah, I don't, but it's, it's trying to balance that off. You, you need someone who's going to be willing to track back on the right-hand side of the three as well if you're going to switch yeah, back that's to four, true. Two, three, one. That's true. And I'm not convinced that if you put in, if you switch the formation that way, okay, you leave Kennedy right back, but who do you put in on the right-hand side of the three? Uh to be fair, yeah, yeah. I haven't thought that far ahead. My vision had <laughs> Connor Barron, McCrory and Ramadani in the in the middle and then maybe two widening supporting players. Hayes and maybe, yeah. Uh, it's almost like again. a 4-5-1 that becomes a 4-3-3. Uh, yeah, yeah, kind of, yeah. Maybe with Barron having the license to play in a, in a more advanced yeah. role. But of course, the difficulty with that is you, you then, you don't have Duke playing as close to Miofsky if you play it that way, which... You know, is a challenge as well. There's, there's, there's definitely lots of things that Goodwin has to try and figure out between now and Tuesday night. I think in terms of how we, how we set up. Um, but you, you can do that in a way so that where, when you're in possession and we're up that end of the pitch, you can get the fullbacks so high up that then the Hayes and Duke can then get closer to Miofsky that way. Yeah, no, uh, 
you can. I just I, I do think that Duke and Miofsky are working well as a tandem in general, that you want them to be as close together as you possibly can keep them throughout rather than it continually having to flip between the 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 the, the, sh- the shapes when you're in their possession. But I think actually if they end up with that sort of makeshift defence, you probably want Duke and Miofsky close to each other because they can link up and cause that defence problems. Like Miofsky is pretty skillful, but you know, envisaging a scenario where they're close together that flick-ons work and Duke can get on getting behind rather than have yeah. to come across halfway the you know over the the pitcher or from out wide to get out of the defenders. So I can see I think there's food for thought. The encouraging thing is I would say is like I feel we've got the players I know it didn't work Ibrox, but we've got the players to do something at home, I feel. So that's encouraging. Yeah. I feel the, the, the one positive about our recruitment certainly is that at least in an attacking sense, we have more options available to us than ordinarily we would. It just is how you try and make that all work. I mean, there's an argument there that suggests that you actually push Duke right up on Tavernier quite a bit and basically get him to sit between whoever the right-hand sided centre-half and the right-back is going to be and then Tavernier and try and push Tavernier as far back as you put. Like, not not allow him as much freedom to get up and down line because he has to be a bit concerned about getting back in again. Or even if you... Even if you know he's going to go up and down, just have like someone there be in the space that he's vacated. Yeah, exactly. So that if it's not him worried about going up and down, one of his central colleagues has to come over and you've got a problem there or a midfielder has to shuffle. Basically, almost yeah. like leave Duke sitting there. It's like, well, if you're going to run beyond, that's fine, but I'm here in the space that you've just vacated. Yeah. You hope that causes some some problems. Or it makes him at least think twice about going up the line because... Yeah. If there's one guy who seems to cause us immeasurable problems every time we play them, it's fucking Tavernier. Yeah. Um, anyway, does anyone want to venture a prediction for Tuesday evening? Uh, well, when it comes to what we're doing, <laughs> I expect that um, Wumble will be leading the line. Probably a pretty tight midfield four. And then I guess like the fiddle player and the drummer will be keeping uh, keeping a rear guard action. I think that's entirely possible, Gav. Banking, um, banking on them playing some hits as well. Yeah. White trousers, possibly. Why the hell not? Maybe maybe even a, a fedora. A fedora, excellent. In terms of the football that's taking place at Audrey, a prediction. That's, that's none of my concern. <laughs> yes, on account of uh, the rescheduled fixture and once again, <laughs> the fans being thought of, we will uh, we will not be at Audrey on Tuesday. We'll be in the OGV tap room. Graham will no doubt be quaffing pints of that green apple sours pints that he loves so so very much the same pints that sent guy to bed when we were there for that uh, beer festival <laughs> <laughs> that is true <laughs> didn't even have a sip of it just the sight of it was alone was enough just that was it that's done time. i'm i'm done <laughs> thanks very much it's been a pleasure graham would you like uh, to venture a prediction you know gavin's not going to do one i think we will fall short as per excellent lovely stuff um somebody said to me this week i can't remember who it was somebody messaged me us i think saying that our predictions are a complete waste of time because all we ever do is predict that Aberdeen are gonna win yes we do absolutely um so on that train of thought aberdeen for sevco won lol 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 and then obviously christmas eve we moved to st Mirren. And we had this. Uh, we had a, a creative editorial meeting before we started recording on this about whether we were going to do a session in the middle of the week, and we came to a resounding no, we're not. So 
we'll quickly talk about Simmering next Saturday, Christmas Eve. I think, I think it's a lunchtime kickoff as well, half past 12 at the Smizer. Um, now, so again, it's kind of difficult to, to gauge what's going to happen here because St Mirren's game on Saturday at Motherwell was postponed because of um, weather and various other bits and pieces happening at Fair Park. So St Mirren, they don't have a game midweek either. They, their first game back will be against us on, on Christmas Eve. Um, St Mirren currently in the table sitting in seventh spot. They are, however, only four points off of us. They do have a game in hand against us as well now as a result of that postponement. Um a first return, I think, to St. Mirren for Jim Goodwin since leaving for Aberdeen, I'm pretty certain. Yeah, that's right. Um I haven't done any real research on this because it was a very late call that we were going to go this way. But it's probably fair to say that they've they've definitely had a better season in the league so far than what was predicted, I think, um during the summer and then after their League Cup campaign where they got binned out in the group stages. But you have to remember that the League Cup was unfair against uh, Yeah. Can't because they had too much ball. Session, yeah. 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 Given how so what we were trying to avoid on Saturday. Actually, <laughs> all, jo- all jokes aside, um, St. Mirren are the team with the lowest possession stats in the league 37%. There we go. There you go. Um, given how, especially when we went 1 0 up and you know, Gallagher had a shocker against us, I thought they were in real trouble this season. And um, I think. St. Mirren fans um, that we talked to felt the same way. I have to give him credit. Robinson has turned it around and he's, you know, taken some pretty middling to average kind of players and turned them into a unit that, that can grind out results. So away from home, we're still, you know, not Iffy. setting the world on fire um, at all. So it's going to be another tough game. But given the Celtic result, given that it's going to be hard against Rangers on Tuesday, um, imperative that we can come away with a result and yeah get our season back up and running um especially if we are not able to get uh a victory on tuesday i guess rangers yeah absolutely they're quite an interesting team actually submitting to look at their home form is really good played nine one five drawn three only lost the one game at home this season Um they got a positive five goal difference um 11 four six against it's their way form that's really hurting them away from home played six one one drawn zero lost five. So at home they're they're doing well and they're not exactly a free flowing free scoring outfit. Seventeen goals in total uh, against an expected goals of fourteen point six this season. Um, they keep clean sheets though. They're 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 decent enough at the back. Five clean sheets in the league season placed fifth in the table for that. Uh, one ahead of Aberdeen. It's going to be probably I imagine a bit like when we play a team like Samaritan at home, I think they'll probably try and sit in and make it quite difficult and basically encourage us to try and break them down. I guess very similar to what they did against Celtic, actually, probably. I think the one thing that they'll probably try and do it might kind of uh, play into our hands just on the basis of the options they have up front. They'll probably try and make the game quite physical. Yeah. And when that's happened, that's you saw when Jack Amakis came on for Celtic, that Stuart was starting to kind of... Yeah, he almost relaxed a bit. <laughs> I kind of started to assert some dominance because this is a striker we can actually now like physically kind of get his hands on, which he did on a couple of occasions. Yeah. Um, as opposed to Kyogo, who at one point Kyogo ran away from Stuart with such speed, it was like watching watching an 18 year old whippersnapper who's had like a gym membership for half of his life play the 50 year old at goals who's been smoking since he was 18. 
So um, I think that having players like that will be... But how many goals did that young whippersnapper score? That's right. Zero, because he's got Zero. all the techers and all the gear, but none of the composure. Yeah. Um, so I think that could play into our hands a little bit. Um, but yeah, I, I can't I can't sit here and be overly positive or really confident about what we're going to do on the road because that has proven to be folly for many. That's proven Johan to be folly. folly for many, many months now. Uh, and once again, Christmas Eve, Aberdeen, trip to Paisley, just what you want. Definitely. Followed up by a trip to Kilmarnock, isn't it? On, yeah, the 28th, a trip to Kilmarnock. Did you say it was a lunchtime kickoff? Uh, Simmons on lunchtime. Yeah, Christmas uh, Eve. That's, that's a shame. I was about to make a joke if it was an evening kickoff, but how some Aberdeen fans will be spending the early minutes of Christmas on the uh, on an anonymous stretch of British motorway. <laughs> <laughs> Does anyone want to venture a prediction for Christmas I, Eve? I actually do think that in the way that football works, the returning manager, first time back at his uh, old stomping ground, will come away with a victory. So I'm going to say a tough, gritty, brutal to watch 1-0 Aberdeen victory. Oof. Declan Gallagher own goal. <laughs> Get him. No, no. Lovely. Love it. I don't think we've had a nil. Have we had a nil-nil draw this season yet? Nearly had one on Saturday. Yeah, nearly. <laughs> but not quite. No, just hey. that late sucker punch. <laughs> 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 and I'm going to say next Saturday, it'll be the Dons sucker punching St Mirren with a 4-0 hammering. <laughs> <laughs> and I think... This has been quite difficult to pull the motivation together, hasn't it, boys, to, to come on and talk about yesterday, let's be honest. I think that'll wrap up part one, will it? Definitely. Yeah, there we go. That wraps up the first half of this week's ABZ Football Podcast. Join us on the other side as we bring you part two of our exclusive interview with Brian Irvin. This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast is brought to you by Siberia Bar and Hotel on Bellman Street. Aberdeen. Book your Christmas night out at Siberia, who are offering area hire, buffet platters, and a welcome drink for just £30 per person this festive season. Get in touch by emailing scott at siberia-aberdeen.com. That's scott at siberia-aberdeen.com for more details. And while you're at it, why not grab tickets at the same time for Siberia's 2023 Hogmanay celebrations with music from Overload. Welcome back to the ABZ Football Podcast and before we move on to the interview with Brian Irvin, again just a shout out to those of you who have made your contributions to the Beer and Coffee Fund this week. We see your bread is appreciated. If you'd like to help keep us fueled in beers or coffees, please head on over to ko-fi.com forward slash ABZ Football Podcast. The link is in the description. If you share us beer or a coffee, it is absolutely much appreciated and we've had a really good response as always to our First installments of the My Favourite Game segment with Duncan Shearer and Martin Stone. If you've just joining us the first time ever, um, the plan for this is obviously to get a mixture of fans, ex-players, managers, etc. onto the show. Talk about their favourite Aberdeen game uh, if you want to get involved. Um, as a couple of people have done this week, please hit us up on Twitter or email us at abzfootballpodcast at gmail.com with your game, why you've picked it, 
it can be for any reason. Um, your first game, something silly, something sentimental, whatever. Let us know what it is. Um, we'll try and get you on for a chinwag to talk about it. But now, without any further ado, it is the latest in our line of exclusive interviews with Don's personalities of past and present. And this time, I say this time, it's part two of our interview with a man signed by Sir Alex Ferguson in the summer of 1985. He'd go on to play 387 times in red, scoring 40 goals. It is, of course, the one and only Brian Irvin. You kind of touched on it there, though, about whether you did or didn't repay um, Alex Smith and, and Jockey Scott. These guys, you certainly did, Brian, because like we spoke to Jockey uh, two or three weeks ago now. Uh-huh. And um, jo- first of all, Jockey's memory of his entire career as a player and also as a manager is unbelievable, um, second to none. But there are like certain players, I think, amongst the team that that he had at Aberdeen um, in that period who he just like spoke so effusively about to us and. Yourself and Brian Grant, um, in particular, were two who he kind of picked out for a lot of praise um, around just your general attitudes. And I think it was this, this I think Jockey's view is that I think both yourself and, and Brian Grant just kind of needed yeah. that run of games and that confidence boost that you guys were more than capable of playing for, for Aberdeen Football Club. And that's what they felt they kind of gave you guys was just that, you know, impetus yeah. of confidence and, and yeah. everything to go. And, and, you know, Jockey's honestly one of the best sets of interviews we've done since we started doing this with jockey what a guy um yeah. and everybody we talk to who's who work with jockey um says the same thing and yeah, yeah. if there's if you ever have a question about whether you did or didn't repay them you absolutely did that's that's yeah. absolutely not a question at all you just touched on teal there because teal obviously comes in in that summer as well talk about some big gloves to fill in the shape mm-hmm. of jim layton's mm-hmm. um and i think i'm right in saying yes you are you're the first centre half we've spoken to who played in front of Theo. We've, we've, we've talked to other guys who were in the team, but not one who played dry, directly in front of him. What was that like? Yeah, Theo, who's known for that big booming voice, you know, with the Dutch accent and the, and the English, he was very, he became very fluent in English, but yeah. you know, it was very much a, it was a kind of unusual shout out or whatever you used to <laughs> shout. And you were no hesitation to do do what he said. Um, really enjoyed playing in front of Theo and and a good friend of Theo right to today. Even you know, I still keep in touch with Theo, one of the few people you've managed to stay in touch with in the in the game. Um, he was a tremendous goalkeeper, and, and you know, just so great, good saves he would make. Just confidence in your back, talking to your back four. He was really good at that. So a great signing by Alex Smith, and that was. An agent, Ton Ton Van Halen, I think his name yep. was. It would get all the Dutch people. Got Theo, Peter Van de Ven, you know, people like that. Uh, Big Willem Van der Aert when he came as well. You know, the, this link, that Dutch contingency that we had, Theo Tenka, yeah, uh, we're all down to you know Alex Smith, and you know that that's just sign of a good. I mean, part of a management whether you're a good manager or not, isn't just whether you can get the players organised on the pitch, it's getting getting the players on the pitch, the recruitment. And, you know, he obviously went to the Dutch market and, you know, he, he, couldn't, have, he couldn't have picked better because he got real good professionals who, again, when you're speaking about jockey, uh, giving a good regard to, towards yourself about how you, you did for him. And these all did well for Alex Smith and it just shows how well he recruited and then got the best out of them in training and, and playing the matches. But the recruitment has to happen first. And so, you know, that, that 
that's all down to Paul Mason. Although he wasn't Dutch, he was English, but he was playing in Dutch football. And he managed to get, unearth these diamonds. And, you know, that was a big factor in Alex Smith and Jockey doing so well during their time at Aberdeen. Absolutely. That 88-89 season, you get your first taste of um, playing at Hamden, the final mm-hmm. League Cup, coming off the bench for Neil Simpson um, in this one. Eventually, we lose out for the second year on the spin to Rangers. This time, it's 3-2. But what are your kind of memories of that of that one? Well, the first, first thing was that was my, my, my first time in a cup final for Aberdeen. So, high about that, thinking of... Remember, I'm just a, a schoolboy mentality in my head, really. <laughs> reaching goals that you just think it's just possible to do them. It didn't happen overnight, you know, but even though it's happened gradually up to four or five years after my first sign for Aberdeen, it's still amazing when it happens. And so the, the excitement of playing in the cup final, for most people would be disappointment because they played for a couple of minutes maybe just in the yeah. final, they lost the final. That's definitely a factor. But for me, the overriding excitement was I've actually just played in a cup final for Aberdeen. You know, that, that was the high for me. Even at the time, just overshadowed or overcame the disappointment of losing the game to Rangers yet again. Because, um, again, I'd played a number of games in the lead-up to the League Cup final, not as much as the year before when I played in them all. This mm-hmm. time I had played a couple of them anyway. I've been in the, in the squad for the other ones that I didn't uh, get in the, 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 the starting eleven for. But just to get... Yeah, undoubted disappointment at losing for the second year in a row to Rangers in the League Cup final. But the, the excitement for me of playing a Cup final for, for Aberdeen meant the boyhood dream was kept alive of representing Aberdeen at the level that you dreamt of as a boy. And now you're on your way to fulfilling, you know, and, and although it's a disappointment, that was it. You just played in that one Cup final and you'd lost it. And that was what all you got in your career. I suppose you'd have been still quite happy because of the Aberdeen connection and how much Aberdeen meant to you. But thankfully, obviously, you're covering the subsequent seasons. You managed to surpass that. But that was the high of reaching that moment, Gary, just of playing in a cup final for Aberdeen. That overshadowed the disappointment of losing to Rangers for the second year in a row in the League Cup final. Let's do it, Brian. Let's move on to eighty nine ninety. I think uh, I think we yeah. have to do it now. Um, we've, we've talked about two cup final defeats there, and let's not dwell on those for too long. Yeah. Um, firstly, of course, we we finally get the better Rangers at the third time of asking in the League Cup in 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 nineteen eighty nine. Um, eventually coming through two goals to one after extra time, thanks to a double by the aforementioned uh, Paul Mason. Now you yeah. come off the bench in this one for a very very young Ian Jess, um, yeah. but just. Your overall memories of the game, watching it from the bench, getting the shout you're going on, and you know you touched on it a minute ago. Just playing in a cup final was a huge, huge yeah. thing for you. Yeah. What's it like getting your hands on a winner's medal for your boyhood club? Yeah, well, again, so you've got the same situation as last year, where you've you've reached a second cup final with your, your boyhood team. That's enough for me. I'm happy with that. But better, better than that, we've actually won it this time. I uh, didn't play a big part in it, I think. A couple of touches, two or three, four, maybe five maximum touches of the ball during the time I was in the park. But enough, when you're in the final whistle goes and you realise we've won the cup. And now it's not like 1984 season. I remember watching Aberdeen win the League Cup, uh, the Scottish Cup, on the television against Rangers. When they won, I think, 4-1 it was in the final one, the ball hit off Neil Cooper and he stands up near the six-yard line and just taps into the empty net. 
remember watching that in my house in Airdrie, thinking, whoa, Aberdeen have just won the Scottish Cup. Now, this is not the same excitement, maybe. That, well, and some saying it's not the same excitement, but it is in a way, because it was 2-1 against Rangers, but finally, after three years, managed to overcome them. Paul Mason and two good goals. You've come on, and you're on the pitch at full time. And you've you've had you've managed to win the league cup. Aberdeen have won the league cup, and you're part of that that uh, that squad. So that level I spoke about of representing Aberdeen at a cup final, you're now taking it to another level by winning the league cup final, and you're celebrating with the fans. And when it came to the presentation of the cup, you're then one of the guys that's handed the cup to hold up to to the supporters. That's another level, completely different level, and it's you know it's. Again, without being cliched, it's boys' boys' dream stuff. Boys' would be, yeah. you know, and it was. It was just a. And it, the fact, you only played five, ten minutes or less in the game. It's forgotten about that moment. You're on the pitch and you're holding the cup. And I always said, and I always don't make any um, embarrassment about saying it that I was an Aberdeen supporter on the pitch that was fortunate to be able to be representing. The fan that's in the terrace and with his scarf around his neck and his his, unif- his clothes on, I was actually on the strip on the pitch. Now, for some reason, I got that chance to play for Aberdeen. And so I could be on the pitch legitimately <laughs> and not be arrested. Like if a normal fan came on the pitch during a cup final or a game, they would just be carted off to the police. I was able to represent, and I was just one of the pl- fans on the pitch actually holding the cup. The, and that's how I can best describe it, especially in the early day when it was this cup final. I'd only played a small part, but enough to be on the park at the final whistle, holding the league cup up. Yeah, that's that for an Aberdeen supporter is you know what everybody would dream of. And I was very fortunate in this occasion with the league cup to get that opportunity. Obviously, in the Scottish Cup it was bigger and greater, but for now, anyway, in the league cup, this is now a new level. That part of your life, you're at, you can't, you're not beyond that yet. So you, this is the best moment in your football and life, to be representing an Aberdeen team on the park, holding the League Cup up, wearing an Aberdeen strip, instead of being a fan on the, on the terrace. And I, hope that, that's, I, I can't describe it any better. <laughs> I think, Brian, you've done a good enough job. I'm literally sitting here with goosebumps yeah. as you're talking about that. Because, I mean, you're saying there about living the dream, and that's exactly what it is. I mean, I'm now 38 years old, and I suspect I still have the occasional actual dream at night where I am winning a cup playing for Aberdeen so yeah, like I said, I'm not even joking I genuinely have goosebumps just listening to you talking about just that excitement that we've well, even got to the Scottish Cup well, I'm I haven't even got there that, yet that's how exciting <laughs> it was in that moment in that, in that League Cup final uh, again November time as it, see, it was always finished by November the League Cup yeah. and, and that's how it was it's just one of the fans fortunate to be able to wear the strip and lift the cup we just touched on him a minute ago there. Ian Jess is a real shock inclusion in that starting lineup um, for that cup final. Um, and it feels now as, a, as good a time as any just to ask about, you know, your memories about playing alongside Ian and, you know, where does he kind of rank in the the, the, yeah. the the players that you actually played alongside with your time at Aberdeen? Because you've got, you've got actually a really incredible timeline, Brian, in terms of your career. Mm-hmm. It's probably just yourself and Stuart McKimmy, I would suggest. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe Brian Grant to an extent, but who kind of straddled that Fergie era team and then the kind of early 90s, mid 90s team? Um, you know, where would Ian rank in amongst the players that you played with? Yeah, he, Ian, Ian, would, Ian would be there alongside Charlie Nicholas. You know, he was a, 
a skillful player, um, and probably yeah, just as, as skillful as Charlie Nicholas. Yeah, that's how I highly rate Ian, and you know he he kind of proved himself at Aberdeen a couple of times. He went away and did well when he went away, but he did you know he came back and did it another job at Aberdeen. So that that shows how how highly he was thought of at Aberdeen. But at this stage in the eight, eight seventh when he eighty eight season when he got thrown into the cup final, what a part of the game he played there. As a young boy to come in and and, and do so well in the League Cup final just showed, you know, tremendous um ability that he had as a player because, you know, that t- that takes a lot of doing to be able to play against Rangers and do so well for a young boy. And yeah. you know and then he went on to play that must have given him a lot of confidence obviously. And he went on and had a great career uh, a couple of times at Aberdeen uh, nationally. I'm saying he's as good as Charlie. He probably played as many times for Scotland as Charlie, so that that would that would kind of balance that out. Say yeah. that, that right. I think he was a, a Charlie Nicholas type player mm-hmm. for his generation. Some of the goals, remember four one at Hearts, he scored for all four goals. Yeah, you know, on his game, he was a real skillful player. Yeah, I remember four at East End Park as well against them Firm and uh, sorry, that was it. Yeah, yeah, four at Hearts as well, or was it Hat Trick at Hearts? But certainly four at the Fairman. So that yeah, Hat Trick at Tanner Dice as well. I remember, but the four at Dunfermline in particular. I mean, like, yeah. gave Davy Moyes an absolute horror of a time um, yeah. at the East End Park. Um, and then yeah. was it, it was a Hat Trick against Indian United. I think we won three two against Indian United. Yeah. He scored a Hat Trick. So you know, he, he was a quality player. Ian. A uh, special, special player. And I think it's one of those, isn't it? Like again, it was, it's a generational thing because, like, the eighty nine ninety season, like, so the the, the eighty nine League Cup final, the Skull Cup final. That, that's my first ever Cup final as an Aberdeen yeah. fan that I, that I was able to get to. I would have only been, I've been five, I think, maybe coming up for six at the time, and yeah. just what a magical, magical day that was. And um, it's when you start thinking, this is just how it's going to be all the time. <laughs> um, which then obviously moves us on to the Scottish Cup. Um, and the Scottish Cup in 1990 is everyone talks about the final, right? But to a certain extent, the whole run, the whole Scottish yeah. Cup that season is, is all about Brian Irvin. Um, you start each of the games that that, that gets us yeah. to the final. Uh, a six-two win at Firhill in round three, a two-one win over Morton at Petaudry yeah. in round four. You score the third as we route Hearts four goals to one in the quarterfinals, yeah. and you also score the opener. At Tyne Castle, as we beat United four 0 in the semi-finals yeah. to set up what is our first Scottish Cup final since nineteen eighty six against Celtic. So yeah. the game itself is is terrible. <laughs> Both sides could still be playing now, I think, and not score. <laughs> um, yeah. Eventually, the game winds its way through extra time and into penalties. It's the first ever Scottish Cup final to be decided on a penalty shootout. Now, during the shootout. When did it dawn on you that you might actually be needed to step up to take one? I think, I think um, maybe three from the end. Okay. So it was Graham, Graham Watson. Um, who was who? Dave, no, Dave. I mean, we'll do it in me, order, will we? We'll do it in order because I've got them here. So yeah, got, nine men have stepped forward, and you can tell me at which point you think. Well, oh, wait a minute here. Right. This is getting a bit yeah. too close for comfort. Yeah. So Jim Bet steps up first. Bobby Corner, Hans Heelhouse. Brian Grant, who's the only one on the day to miss. Um, yes. Charlie Nick steps up and sticks his in the top corner. And let's be honest, what a penalty kick that is, given the pressure on Charlie knowing he's going back to Celtic in the summer. Um, Big X steps up, 
Stuart McKimmy, it's we spoke to Stuart about this before. Yeah. This is the first penalty kick Stuart's ever taken in professional football. <laughs> this one. Yeah. Uh, Davy Robertson's the same as well, I think, and he's cramping yes. up as he steps up to take his. And then it's Graham Watson. Yeah. So I would say after the Davy Robertson time, <laughs> I was thinking, but I, you're saying Stuart McKimmy was his one and only penalty. At this stage, I hadn't hit a penalty professionally. All I had to go on was my record as a boy, a schoolboy, and I never had a good record scoring penalties. I think in schoolboy football in the Airdrie, I missed a couple. They used to have a, a, a football tournament at Broomfield with the schools uh, each season, each year, and at the end of the football season, but May time, and it was a big thing amongst the local primary schools in the Airdrie. And I remember getting to the final and the quarter-final of the same tournament that year, and I missed penalties in both games, although we won, we won the, into the final, but lost the penalty shootout in the final as well. So my record, that was one example, was not good at scoring penalties. So that was why I didn't think... And it, during get, and a lot of times in training, when you're messing about again, when players do with the... I'd go in the goals, but also you take shots at each other, penalties at each other. I didn't have a good record at penalties. For some reason... You know, some guys you see, it's not easy to score a penalty, but some guys just make it look easy to score a penalty. I was never one of those guys, so that's why I was not wanting to take a penalty. And so, Davy, but by the time it came to Davy Robertson, I'm thinking, well, we're running out of guys here, so I think I might end up have a penalty here. He scored, Celtic scored, then it was between Graham and me. Now, Graham's just a young boy, and I said to Graham, you want me to go? Or, I'm not that confident, Graham, but how are you? And he said, I'm okay, I can hit. I'm good at penalties, I'll take a penalty. I said, well, absolutely, you go then, Graham. But <laughs> it wasn't a case of throwing a young boy to the, into the Lions' den. It was thinking, as again, from a supporter's point of view, well, the main thing is we win the cup. Yeah. If Graham hits, hits a penalty and we're still in the cup, that's the main thing. If I, if I go forward and miss, then we lose the cup. Because remember Celtic, from Charlie on, it was basically sudden death. And yeah. so Celtic had always scored and every Aberdeen player, the pressure was on them because if they missed, Celtic had won the cup. So Graham had to score for us to win the cup. Thankfully, he does. So it's still all square. Anton Rogan goes forward and Theo got the fans uh, really up for it. We adjusted towards the Aberdeen fans behind the goal, made a bit of noise. Maybe I think it was a factor in making Ant Anton Rogan miss because it wasn't actually a bad penalty. No, it's, it's not a bad penalty at all. It's a great save. A great save. And it's, you know, Theo's up for it. Fans are cheering at the time. And that, that was it. So now I can go forward with the pressure almost off because it's not to win the... It's not to to score, to keep in the cup. Mm. If the, if you get the unbelievable thing scoring it, it'll be to win it, yeah. But if your worst happens and you miss, at least it's still all square and it'll be back either... Two goalies, maybe I don't know, or whether yeah, back to it would have been the Snelders against Bonner, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that's that would have been the unique situation. But at least the pressure was off that it wasn't to score to keep in the cup, so that was a weight off my mind as I went forward. And just had the most of them were being placed in the same position to Pat Bonner's left hand side, yeah, um, but he was always going down to the right, yeah. And thankfully, just before I hit it, and I was going to go, and I was thinking about I'm trying to get this in the top left-hand corner of Pat Bonner and uh, I saw him going to the right just before I hit it and I thought in that split second I thought this goes where I hope it's going to be in so I had a split second of celebration in my mind 
<laughs> made followed by the unbelievable celebration physically of the team and the supporters when you actually hit the net and it won it. And it's just like, um, I mean, you talk about goosebumps. It's, Gary, it's goosebumps for me even 32, and a half, 32 years later. Speaking about it, it's just amazing when it hit the net. It's a totally unique situation. And being an Aberdeen supporter, you now couldn't ask for a more dramatic way of winning a cup for your boyhood team. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so. five years of in the making since you signed that it's worth every disappointment of uh, being left out of first team or not making the choice of the managers over the years or, or not making as good progress as you thought during that time. But this is a reward you've got five years later. Not only the team winning the, the cup, um, Scottish Cup, not only the fans getting to celebrate winning the Scottish Cup, but you personally have managed to do something that's hopefully going to be remembered as it still is. You know, yes. we've been fans all these years later. So what a moment that couldn't have asked for a better moment in, in your Aberdeen career. A totally unique thing. But, oh, absolutely. Uh, it, it, it cements your place, Brian, in the folklore of Aberdeen Football Club forever. It's amazing. Um, it, it, it's, it's just one of those things, isn't it? It's, you know, how, thinking back to it, how long did that walk seem to be from the centre circle to the penalty spot? Yeah, pretty long, but not as long as it, I'm honestly, I'm just, I'm not trying to deface myself, or put, um, but genuinely to the five guys or four guys, and I say from Charlie on, mm-hmm. for them it must have been a lot longer because every Aberdeen player had to score to keep us in the cup. Yeah. If any one of them had missed, like Brian Grant did, then the cup was over and it was Celtics. You know, but so the the real pressure was in them. Mines was a win win. The guys in the first five, uh, four four, sorry, before it got to Charlie, there's not the same pressure in them because it's it's just a it's a two one or it's it's two each or it's three two or whatever. There's not the winning the game coming to its conclusions at stake. Whereas and that's the ironic thing with shootout. It's it's so cruel in some ways and players because you know when it gets to the crunch it's genuinely the the guys who don't really want to hit the penalties that are taking them yeah yeah. both teams you know the first five usually the ones that put their hand up and say yeah I can take a penalty and sometimes they score but sometimes they're envy they can miss but genuinely they're confident they'll score but when you get to the thing a penalty shootout not just the Aberdeen Celtic game but any penalty shootout generally here you've always got the sudden death guys who are hitting penalties who genuinely don't really want to hit the penalties, otherwise they'd have volunteered in the first five, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly, yeah. That which make, that's what makes penalty shootouts quite a cruel way to decide uh, a big event, yeah. you know, whatever event that is. But, you know, I can't complain about penalty shootouts. I would speak about them all day. It's, it's, it, it was wonderful. I, I just love, Brian, the, the, the fact that you had the clarity of thought at that moment while you're walking up thinking, you know what, actually, like, I'm in not a bad place here because I can miss in it. Like mm-hmm. it just it just moves on. Like I can't yeah, imagine yeah. having that ability to have that clarity of thought in such a high pressure situation like that. Oh, um, it's not a it's not a thought that's going through your head like you're spending yeah, a couple, yeah. couple of minutes on it. You know, it's a kind of a fleeting comment in your head. It's going through a lot of things are flashing through <laughs> your head, but you know, and thankfully the thing that still flashes through my head is a ball hitting the back of the net. It's a moment you'll never ever forget. Literally, it's imprinted in your brain. You know, a lot of things you can remember remember quite well in your life, but that's one of these. It's just 
basically seared in your brain, you know, yeah. just how, however your brain remembers things. That is as clear as if it was the moment I did it, um, both for myself, but more importantly, I always think, more importantly for every supporter who was behind the goal, whether it was five-year-old like yourself or six-year-old like yourself or a, a, a 90-year-old man who was in the crowd, you know, anybody who was there, the excitement that we all shared that moment, it was just wonderful that you'd have, you'd have part in making that possible. One Unbelievable, Gary. I love it. I love it, Brian. I mean, and it's unbelievable that it's, um, what, we're going to be 33 years yeah. as a very bare minimum since Aberdeen last won the Scottish Cup and, um, I tell you that um, six-year-old me at the time um, I know. wouldn't have thought that that would have been wouldn't have been the case. Um, it's an incredible moment, and we just touched on it there. I mean, like it's it does mean that yourself, um, alongside Theo, I guess uh, for saving the penalty as well from yeah. you know the two of you are absolutely just kind of you know forever going to be immortalised amongst the Aberdeen support for for that for that particular moment. Um, well, some I, wonderful wonderful pictures of Theo and myself after that moment in the cup. Yeah, and that's that's pretty special and you know I can guarantee I know how it makes me feel and I know how it makes Theo feel and I know we share that moment with Aberdeen supporters and it's as special with Aberdeen supporters as to us I mean we, we were the guys that were in the physical moment of saving the penalty or scoring the penalty but you know we, we all shared that moment and when yeah. you were 6 or 60 you know if you were there that day because you've, I've experienced it being on the playing side, I can I can genuinely say if you were in the supporters and got the same, you'll have the same buzz or the same excitement from seeing your team score the, win, uh, the winning goal that the players who did it themselves did. And I can only I can meet I can genuinely mean that because I'm not saying that. Oh, if I was hitting that penalty, I'm sure I get as much excitement supporting the team when I wasn't in the penalty shooting position. I've been in the penalty shooting position. And I've been in the support. I mean, the League Cup final in 2014, for example, mm. I'm cheering on the Aberdeen team when we won the League Cup in, in the penalty shootout against Inverness. You know, in, in a way, I think to encourage the supporters' involvement, and the, when the team came back up in the open deck bus, I was in the Union Street waving the bus mm-hmm. with the supporters the next day. Now, in the 1990, I'm on the bus waving to the supporters on the, t- on the Union Street. And I can genuinely say, having been in both positions, both were as equally special in a different different way. Obviously, because you were more involved with the shooting, involved in the shootout, yeah, in the the ninety game. But the moment you, you were cheering the fans on down to the townhouse meant as much to me in two thousand and fourteen as as it did in nineteen ninety when we came back down the bus and, and the open deck bus. So there you go, Aberdeen supporters do me. You know, you're not getting a second best. You're getting as good as being a player in the, in the situation. If it's your team and getting the excitement, you know, if you're indifferent about it, then obviously it doesn't mean anything to you. But if you're really passionate about your team, then I can genuinely say it's the same feeling supporting the team as it is being part of the team and, and contributing to the team winning. Absolutely. Um, I love it, Brian. Honestly, love it. Um, into the next season, uh, you play in what turns out to be Willie Miller's final competitive yeah. match for Aberdeen, a 2-1 win at Hamden against uh, Queen's Park in the League Cup at the start of the 1990-91 season. Before, you then make your international debut for Scotland in September of 1990, a 2-1 win over Romania at Hamden in a Euro 92 qualifier. When did you get wind that you were going to get a, you were going to start that game? And I mean, 
by this point, you know, you've played for your boyhood club, you've won yeah. trophies with your boyhood club, you're the penalty shooter hero just a few months uh, prior. How proud a moment then just to cap all off with a uh, a full cap for, for the international team? Literally, this, this caps it all, doesn't it? Because, I mean, I've never been involved with international schoolboy levels and down through under-21s. And this was just... And when did I find out? Sunday lunchtime, uh, after a game on a Saturday. And there was a couple of call-offs, I think. And so, you know, Andy Roxburgh had phoned up Alex Smith. And Alex Smith then got in touch with me. I think I'd come back from... I'd been at church on Sunday morning. I came back home and there's a phone. It wasn't the case of... Um, in those days, you had a mobile phone. I think it was bef- before mobile phones were quite as common as they are today. So it was on your, your house phone. He phoned okay. and, yeah. and just asked, can you get yourself down to Hamden as quick as you can? He'd been called into the Scotland squad. I don't know who, who the centre-half, whether it was Richard Goff or Dave McPherson or somebody had called off. Um, and I think because Alec McLeish and Stuart McKimmy were the full-back and the centre-back uh, and Andy Roxburgh's team at that time, I was the natural one to fit in almost the Aberdeen mm. team uh, to, to, to call up. You know, I, I don't know if that's the, the reason Andy called me in for the first time, but for me, it was like a, what, I'm going to get picked for Scotland here? Right? You know, no real clue that I was in the reckoning for getting, until I got this phone call from Alex Smith on the Sunday after, at lunchtime. So then I had to drive down to, to Largs or somewhere in the southwest of Scotland where we were staying. Um, and and I would, I'm trying to think, because obviously I drove down, but how did my car get back up to Aberdeen? I can't, that's, that's my memory's not able to fill in that gap. Um, but I, I can remember driving down it and remember, struggling to remember here, but the hotel where we were going, I had no idea. So I'm having to stop a number of people and say, how did I get to some hotel that Scotland was given the instruction to get to? And I didn't remember it properly, so I was having to ask somebody as I was getting to the outskirts of Glasgow. And to, for finally, late at night, on the Sunday night, I found my way to the hotel. And now we're again, we're now reaching, you've got domestic level with Aberdeen being your dream come true. But again, as a boy, you always dreamt of playing for your country. And now you're mixing with the Scotland squad, Alan McCoy, Paul McStay, you know, household names, even though you're you're a fellow professional, but to me you're still looking up to these as international players. Mm-hmm. And now you're in the same hotel as them the next day, you're training with them at Hamden or wherever the training ground was on the Monday and the Tuesday. And I think in fact I was playing alongside Alec and Stuart, they gave you the confidence to think, don't worry, it's going to be just about playing an Aberdeen game. And it went into the game, although it's a big game, there was a big crowd, but it was a big game, you know, the international uh, European championship qualifier against to make it to, to Sweden for the first game. Yeah. And obviously, Romania were a really, really good team. And but you're, you're confident because you're with good players. You know, whatever you think about Scotland, it is the best players playing for your country. So you're with good players. And I was more confident as well because I'm with two good teammates, Alec and Stuart. And so the game went really well. And we got off to a 2-1 win. And I always remember Andy Roxburgh saying, because I didn't play any other games. I was in a couple of squads, but didn't play from the beginning again. Mm-hmm. I'd played my part by helping them get the first win in the first game before they qualified for for the finals uh, at the end of the group stage. And so, you know, again, as a team player, you've played your part. Yeah. It wasn't the main part, but it was a, 
a good part to help Scotland qualify for a Euro Championship. That um, 1990-91 season, um, I mean, it's, it's it's famous, let's be honest, purely for the run-in and then the chase yeah. down at Rangers to that final day shootout at Ibrox um, in May 91. Now, you miss out the last couple of months of that season with injury. Um, but how frustrating was that again for you to have to watch that run-in from the sidelines? And then were you at Ibrox on the final yeah. day? Yeah, I was on the bench again, similar to the cup final Aye. in 86. But obviously, I'd played in 32 of the 36 games. So I'd played quite a part in the league campaign yeah. that year. And it was just the groin injury was cast... Uh, too difficult to, you know, I was taking painkillers and tablets to t- try and put away the pain of the groin, but, and it was a thing called Gilmer's groin. Um, you had to get, I went down for during the season to get diagnosed and he found it was, that was the reason it was causing the problem. So I knew I had to try and get through to the end of the season with it as I had been doing up to about 30 odd games. But Stuart McC- uh, McKimmy alongside Big Alec had done well and one of the games I was left out for a rest in mm-hmm. to try and recover. And so that's why we thought kind of combined decision with Alex Smith and myself. I was quite happy to just say, well, I'd rather be playing in every game, but more importantly, I'd rather Aberdeen were winning every game. And, you know, I'm, my, my role in the team is in the team, but it's, it's, the team's bigger than me. And it's more important we win. So we had continued to win until we got to the last game where we just needed a draw against Rangers. But, you know, unfortunately, they didn't get that. And you're watching it from the bench. The chances early on were a couple of chances, I think, for Peter van der Ven and Hans Heelhouse. Yeah. Were good chances. And if we'd taken them, it could have been a different story altogether. And we could have stopped Rangers in the middle of their nine in a row. Yeah, like, yeah they get nowhere near it. And I think if we'd got a first goal that day, you know, the least we'd have got would be a draw. Yeah, um, you know, Michael Hawk, no chance with that first header from Hately against them and things like that. But you know, that was a major disappointment, and so I had to then go down right after that game to to London to get the Gilmer groin operation. Okay, and I remember sitting watching the obviously don't get to watch the Scottish Cup final in the afternoon from the ho- the hospital where I was getting the operation, and it was the FA Cup final between Spurs and Nottingham Forest. And of course, that was a tackle at Gaza made a tackle problem with his knee. That's right, yeah. Problem yeah. Going to Italy. But anyway, he ended up being taken from the the game in the London uh, Wembley to the hotel, to the hotel, to the hospital. I always call it a hotel. I don't know, it's <laughs> a private hospital. It was like a hotel. But anyway, he took to the hospital and he was taken into the room next to me. Okay. And of course, the next it was the Nottingham Forest team won. The, uh, sorry, the Spurs team won the league uh, FA Cup. Yeah. So the whole team came in the team bus for the FA Cup and brought it up to Gaza's room. So I, I was just in the next room. I wasn't privy to that um, celebration, but I saw the team going into his room with the FA Cup. So that's a year after the FA, the Scottish Cup final. Yeah. A year on, okay, we've lost the league in, uh, uh, against Rangers. But here I'm watching the... The, 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 the FA Cup coming into the, the hospital where I'm getting the operation for my Gilmer's groin and the great thing about the operation was it was a complete success and by the start of this, the next season I'm ready to go and ready to play even though it was only like seven, eight weeks later it was a bit longer than what the close seasons are now Yeah, but it was still quite a quick turnaround and the pain I had suffered in particular the last three, four months of that season was completely gone and the operation was a complete success so 
that made a disappointment. About, that would have been the, the one championship the Premier League could have won. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, you'd run Rangers close a couple of years, finish second to them uh, four or five times during the minor row run. Yeah, but that year was one we should have really we should have really won the league that year, and that that I suppose now in reflection would have been the dis- biggest disappointment in your career. I was going to ask. I mean, I think most of the guys we spoke to who played that day, um, or who weren't around it, would would probably say that, that that's the the one that feels kind of got away from them a little bit. And yeah, totally looking back to it. And I think as well, I think a lot of us on the outside of the club, you know, um, the supporters, you know, I would probably contest. I'm not entirely sure that. You know the wounds from that defeat at Ibrox have ever really been healed um, from an yeah. Aberdeen perspective. Because even then, you know, the next season it's kind of clear that things are just not quite right. The next season, you know, there's the defeat to Copenhagen in the first round of the UEFA Cup. Air doing knockouts out in the League Cup. The pressure's kind of starting to build. Jockey leaves to go and join Dunfermline. Um, like from your perspective, did did Jockey leaving did did that kind of change the dynamic a little bit in the dressing room? Um, yeah. Yeah, I think Alec and Jockey were always seen as a pair, and um, you know their own—they're actually proved to be managers in their own right, mm-hmm. and so it shouldn't have been a problem. But you know, we always saw them as, just at that time in the, the football lives. They looked—they were a pair, and you know, I worked under Jockey, and he was a great, good manager for me at Dundee, a fantastic manager for me at Dundee. I really ultimate respect for Jockey as a manager and himself. But with him and Alec, that was a team. Mm-hmm. And for I had no understanding of maybe anything that had happened to cause Jockey to go his own way and Alec to there was just that feeling as a player that there was something not right. And as you say that season, whether it was a f- hangover from the previous season of running Rangers so close, they're not there's not an obvious reason that's keeping you from being successful on the part but there's maybe an underlying subconscious thing eating away at you to think you know we're so close this this last season and we didn't get it and maybe there's a, a subconscious thing it's just taking the edge off your game because we definitely had problems we lost you know I played a lot of games that season and you gave your all in all the games mm-hmm. but it's like you're fighting a losing battle sometimes and for Aberdeen's standard have been so successful in the previous years and, and taking that for granted in many ways. This year it wasn't it, I mean it wasn't the end it wasn't disastrous. It wasn't we were, you know, after you know the Ebb Scovedale or, yeah. or Miller years, it wasn't like that. But for the standards we'd set, it was it seemed to be yeah. as low as that that you got to the bottom situation. I mean it was just fifth and sixth, fourth and fifth that you were in a position rather than top or second. And, you know, just but just that edge was taken off. Key games, as you mentioned, Europe, the every game in the League Cup was a was a terrible defeat as well. It should never have, never have happened. So whether it was a, a, a kind of hangover from the, the previous season, it might be a subconscious thing. It's not something that I was aware of, but, you know, it could have been just in your psyche that the disappointment was just lingering. And, you know, coupled to the fact that Jockey left and Alec and Jockey now were no longer a team. But, I mean, Alec and Smith had been putting in place procedures to have Wally on the coaching team. And so Wally had just come on as a, a kind of a third coach yeah. alongside, alongside Drew just weeks before Alec, Alec was sacked. And with hindsight, it was maybe people would say now it would be the wrong decision to have sacked Alec. Maybe if it just persevered 
and let Wally get a bit more experience in the coaching team. Wally eventually became the manager, but maybe it was a bit early and he might have gained a bit more experience and he'd get more time to work under uh, Jockey, uh, sorry, yeah. Alec, but we'll never know. And so Alec was obviously left and, uh, you know, and, and then Wally was thrust back at, into management. And I mean, I think with Wally, I think Wally was a successful manager in his, in his right. For me, I felt I always had to prove to Wally okay. that I was worthy of my place in the team. So that's what drove me on to play the most consistent times during my Aberdeen career was under Wally. Mm-hmm. But I, I wouldn't have said it was the most happiest time for me because I was always feeling I was under pressure to keep my place in the team. But I responded to that by using it as a motivation to keep my place in the team. And so I would play in such a way that Wally couldn't leave you out the next game, you know? Yeah. And that's that was... That's, that's how some managers work for you in that way, but depends on you as a character. You've you've taken that attitude that you're you're going to prove to him. I'll prove what Wally wrong. Yeah. And I yeah. I always felt for whatever reason, whether it could even be down to the fact that come back to the happy moment we speak about the Scottish Cup final. I actually played instead of Wally, for example. Yeah. Uh-huh. And speaking about uh, deep, deep down things, there might have been something Wally held you against you for that. Because mm-hmm. that's what I felt. I always had to prove myself to Wally and play your best. I always felt with Wally, for example, we spoke about Ian Jess earlier, that the young boys, Ian Jess, Scott Booth, had to really always play out their skin because Wally gave them a hard time. Mm. And, you know, they they made a different thing to say, but that's what you felt as a teammate, that they were under pressure all the time. And Wally, instead of making them flourish, it was a wee bit hard on them. And, you know, a different manager would have got a different response from them. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know that was just the, Wally's management style and Wally's as a person style for me personally and for the young boys for example and, and saying all that as I say with Wally the ironic thing is he was responsible for me playing as many games <laughs> yeah. as because I was determined to keep my place in the team and that wraps up this week's episode of the APZ Football Podcast thanks for joining us please remember to like subscribe follow or whatever on your podcast Player of choice, join us next week for episode 77, where we'll look back on our clashes with Sevco 5088 Limited and St Mirren. We'll bring you part three of our chat with Brian Irvin and we will preview at least, or will we preview this? Will we have time to do it? Wednesday, 28th of December. We should be able to do it. Um, Preview our trip to deepest, darkest Ayrshire and a reunion with Derek McInnes on the AstroTurf in Kilmarnock we look forward to seeing you then excuse me excuse me the hallowed astro the hallowed astroturf you're right Gavin absolutely put some respect on that pitch we look forward to seeing you then we wish you all a very merry Christmas when it comes because we won't talk to you before then I don't think we've decided that's what's happening so have a very merry Christmas we'll see you next time around stand free This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast was brought to you in association with Siberia Bar and Hotel on Belmont Street, Aberdeen. Head into the bar, quote the phrase ABZ Pod, that's ABZ Pod, for a £3 pint of Foster's, £4 pint of Moretti, or £5 pint of Fierce any day of the week, including match days. Siberia is open seven days a week, all year round, and the bar is located only 30 seconds walk from the nearest bus stop taking supporters to Stadium for free on match days. 
Come on, you rats. <laughs>